Well, uh, welcome again. Great to have you with us. My name is Toby. I'm the vicar, as I mentioned earlier. It's great to have you with us. We're looking at this uh, sermon series uh, the last four weeks. We've been looking at this. We're going to carry on for the next four weeks. Uh, so this is right in the middle of our sermon series on emotionally healthy discipleship. Um, and discipleship, just to remind you, if you haven't followed the sermon series so far, discipleship is really following Jesus, learning from him. The disciples were those who did that for three years. Uh, but we get to do that too as we read uh, about Jesus in the New Testament. And uh, we're defining discipleship in three ways. One is being with Jesus, spending time with him. Uh, I spent some time in the prayer room this week. It was fantastic. Um, something amazing about carving out a bit of time to be with God in the middle of your day. It was so good. We're going to do it again. Uh, there was great feedback from that. So we're going to do it again. And um, I'd love to encourage you. But being with Jesus. Secondly, uh, becoming like Jesus. The more time we spend with him, the more we become like Jesus. And thirdly, doing the things that Jesus did. And uh, we're now half halfway through our sermon series. We've had um, four, as I mentioned, we've got four coming up. And I guess my question to you is now we're at the halfway stage. How do you think you're doing in your discipleship? How are you getting on? How are you doing at being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did? And anyway, how would you measure that? How can you measure your maturity, as it were? What would you do to measure your maturity? What are the metrics that you would use? If that's your goal, is maturity, what would you use as a lead measure to see whether you're actually tracking and you're heading in the right direction? Well, uh, I wonder whether you'd say it's prayer. Maybe you'd say prayer. If I'm praying, then I'm becoming more mature. Um, maybe you'd say, well, I booked out three slots in the prayer room. I'm doing pretty well. Maybe you'd say, it's the Bible. I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading this all the time. And so I must be becoming more like Jesus because I'm reading this. Maybe you do the Bible in one year app. Maybe you could tick, how many of you ticked off so far of the whatever it is, 80 days that we've had, 75 days, whatever in this year? How far are you getting on? Is that a way of tracking whether you're on the right track? Maybe it's how often you've been to your group or alpha so far this term. Maybe it's how many times you've successfully resisted temptation. What's the metric for maturity? Well, Jesus is asked a kind of similar question by a whole bunch of religious leaders, Pharisees, in the passage that I want to look at in a moment. And he comes up with a really interesting answer. The question that's being asked by the Pharisees is the same kind of thing. How do I know whether I'm on the right track towards becoming more like God wants me to be? In fact, there were, so, there were a lot of commandments that they tried to follow. Uh, if you look in the first five books of the Bible, which was known as the Torah, which is the, the law, uh, these are um, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Within that, there were 613 different commandments. So you might have been thinking in that time, in Jesus' time, well, I've done, you know, I'm pretty well. I've got 500 out of 613. I'm doing quite well. But actually, that wasn't the only number of commandments there were. Because actually, a lot of people say, well, I don't really understand how to interpret this particular commandment in my context. So uh, the rabbis had written a whole bunch of other commandments, 1,500 other ones that were in the, what's known as the Mishnah. So actually, if you look at the totality, it was about 2,100 different commandments. So you might say, well, how am I doing? But then you think, well, it's impossible to keep 2,100 commandments. Why don't we rank them? Why don't we work out which is the most important? And this was the debate that was going on in Judaism at the time of Jesus. How do you work out the most important commandment? 
And so we're going to have a little look at a passage where Jesus asked exactly that question. So if you want to turn in your Bible uh, to Matthew 22, we're going to read uh, a few verses. Matthew 22, 34 uh, onwards. It says this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that's another religious group, the Pharisees, who I mentioned earlier, got together. One of them, an expert in the law, so he was a lawyer, he had spent all his time studying the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we'll come back to that. So if you're asking the question, what is the measure of maturity? How do I live a good life? How do I know that I'm on track? Jesus' answer is really simple. Love. How well are you loving? Are you becoming more loving over time? If you are becoming more loving then you're on the right track to maturity. You're on the right track to becoming like Jesus because Jesus' life was summed up by one word, love. The vision of this church, as I said earlier, is the evangelisation of the nation, uh, teaching people to uh, find out about Jesus, uh, the revitalisation of the church and the transformation of society. Two, uh, those two things, those last two, come from this greatest commandment, to love God with all our hearts. We want to expand as many churches as possible that en- enable people to worship God as we were doing uh, today and the transformation of society to love our neighbour. At the heart of it is love. And so therefore, the spiritual practices that we do which we had encouraged, encouraging everyone to do these things, to pray, to read the Bible, to join a group, to get a mentor. All of these things are great, but they're only a means to one end, becoming more loving. So that's what we're called to do, become more loving. In fact, if we're doing any of these things for any other reason, virtue signalling to others or trying to make up for a sense of lack, but I'm going to you know, read my Bible so God's happy with me or to assuage our guilt, none of that's going to work. If there are means to an end, then fantastic. The means to the end, the end is to love God and to love our neighbour. That's what Jesus says. But love has lots of different definitions, doesn't it? If you ask someone, what does love mean? They might give you 10 different things. Most of our society, Western society, defines love uh, as a kind of feeling. A feeling towards something or someone. So I love dogs. You might love cats. They make you feel good. I love Liverpool. You might, for some weird reason, love Manu or Man City. I love lattes. I love Lanzarote. I love lamp. Whatever it is that you love, it's something that you have an affection for or an attraction to. It's either an affection for or an attraction to. So either affection, you feel great about that person. You have feelings of tenderness and warmth towards that person. Or attraction, you feel like you want to be with them. Or a thing, you, you, want, you want it. It's like a desire. Uh, for example, 
cinnamon buns from Hart's Bakery. I want one. I want, when I say I, I love those, those buns, I mean I want to eat, I want to, I consume it, I want to eat it, I want, I want it. I don't know if you have those feelings. It's that, it's either affection or attraction. And there's nothing wrong with those things at all. But Jesus, when he talks about love, in fact, the Christian definition of love within the New Testament uses a very different Greek word to the one that's normally used. Uh, the ones that normally we use were philia, which means uh, tenderness or affection, uh, or eros, uh, from which we get the word erotic, which means desire. But Jesus and the New Testament have a completely new word, agape. It's very rarely used in any ancient great Greek literature, but the word effectively means something very different. It is sacrificial, it is intentional, and it's preferential. It's sacrificial in that it costs you something to do it rather than getting something from it. It's intentional. In, in other words, it's, it's, it's not just something that happens to you, but it's something that you choose to do. And it's preferential. It is saying to someone else, you're more important. I want to give you the preferential treatment above myself. This was a radically different way of conceiving of love at the time. And it's radically different to our society. Most of our loves are around us. They're self-focused about how they make us feel. This agape is directed outwards. And so when Jesus says, the greatest thing you can do is to love God and to love your neighbour, this was revolutionary. I was really struck this week if you heard the story of a guy called Ian Umney from St. Helens who travelled 17,000 miles this week, uh, 1,700 miles this week, to the Ukraine, because that's where his Ukrainian wife and son are living. He, he left his job, he's given up his job, and went from the UK to the Ukraine. And uh, this is what he said. He said, I'm quite shocked that so many people are supporting me, calling me a hero, a superstar dad, and a brave person. I'm not. I'm just Ian from England, and my wife and son are away, and I have to be with them. I love that. I'm not a hero. I just, I love my wife. I love my son. I have to be with them. Now, I'm sure there's some philia, there's some tenderness, hopefully, towards his wife. I'm sure uh, there's some uh, desire as well. But there's something different about this, which is about sacrifice. It's costing him dangerous place to go because he loves them. That is, for me, the definition of agape. And the definition of agape, if you want to look anywhere, is in Jesus. This is how we know what love is. St. Paul writes that Jesus came and died for us. That is ultimate sacrifice. And I had this sort of thought as I read about Ian, and I thought about Jesus and this sense of agape and sacrifice. I wonder whether when Jesus arrived in heaven, he was resurrected, he ascended, and the angels are like, you are amazing. Look what you did. You died for the people. You rose again. You went through all that suffering. You are a hero. You're, you're the best. And he says something along the lines of what Ian said. I'm just Jesus of Nazareth, but I saw my sons and my daughters, and I thought I have to be with them. 
I have to be where they are. I have to walk in their shoes. I have to die for them because I love them so much. So Jesus talks about love. He demonstrates love. He supremely uh, gives us an example on the cross. But uh, he breaks it down into these two commandments. So let's, let's sort of dig into this a little bit. What is the most important commandment? The Pharisees ask. Jesus replies, this is a quote, by the way, love the Lord your God. This is a quote from, not original to Jesus, this isn't Jesus' words. These are the words of Deuteronomy 6. So uh, 6 verse 4. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip back to it. It says this, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your, on, upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk down the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This um, commandment is known in Judaism as the Shema. Uh, the Shema is the first word, hear, hear, O Israel. In other words, listen up. And uh, Orthodox Jews will play this today, twice a day. Uh, and that is the practice of uh, religious Jews all the way through the centuries is to pray the Shema. They would have known it off by heart. So it's no surprise that Jesus says, love the Lord your God like this. This is, this is kind of not a surprise. But let's dig into what he's talking about. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The heart, he's not obviously talking about the thing that beats in your chest. It's a metaphor for the inner life, your thoughts, your thinking, your intellect, your emotions, your feelings, your desire and your will. Everything that is internal to you. Love the Lord your God with your brain. Think about him. Wrestle with theological issues. That's why theological college is a great thing for people to go to, to study some theology. Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your mind, with, all, with everything that's in you. Love the Lord with your emotions. I mean, sometimes we're kind of a bit suspicious of emotions. We sort of think, well, you know, emotions can do all sorts of things. And we, we do have to be careful. But we also have to recognise that emotions tell us something about what's going on in us. One of the revelations that I found this year is to be totally honest with God about my emotions. I've often felt like I have to just sort of be strong. But in this year, the last two years, it's been really tough. And most of my prayers, to be honest, have been, God, I'm sad. I am broken hearted. Or I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm in pain. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. All of those are God-given emotions. So love God with everything that's inside you. That's your heart, your soul. Now, this is not Plato's view. This is not the Greek view that we've kind of inherited in the, a little bit in the West, which is the sort of disembodied soul that somehow floats around inside your physical body. If you've seen the film Ghost, Patrick Swayze, whatever, there's the, um, there's the, 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 the sort of immaterial soul that disappears. That is not the Jewish view. That's the sort of Platonic view. The Jewish view was very much not dualistic, that there's a, there's a body and then there's a soul. It was, that there, it was holistic. It's all one. You don't have a body, you are a body. You don't have a soul, you are a soul. And so what we're talking about here is, here is the essence of who you are as an individual, a unique personality. Love the Lord your God with your uniqueness of God, how God has wired you and made you. 
So love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, and then lastly, your strength. And here, we're not talking about how much you can bench press. Thank goodness. Uh, We're not talking about how good you are at arm wrestling. We're talking about something slightly different. In fact, the, 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 the Hebrew word here is about your influence, your capability, your favor with others, your impact on the world around you. You might think about your career or your future or everything that is around you, the impact that you have on others. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, everything. I find it so easy to compartmentalise. I don't know if you do. I'm a compartmentalizer. But my wife, Jill, is not a compartmentalizer. She is a connector. So if I say to her something, sometimes uh, it's about the recycling and she cries. And I think, what's going on? But the reason is that the recycling has reminded her of something else, has reminded her of something else, something else. It's had a really big impact on her. I'm still trying to understand that. For me, it's like the recycling is the recycling. It's not linked to anything. I don't know why I'm talking about recycling. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a very specific thing, but it's very easy to compartmentalise our Christian lives. And that's not a good thing to do. It's very easy, isn't it, for us to say, Lord, I want to give you my time. I want to do anything you want me to do, but you can't have my money. That's mine. Or, I, I, Lord, I want to give you my future. Like, help me, show me where to go in the future. But I'm, I'm going to hold on to the regrets of the past. Thank you very much. Or, uh, Lord, I want, to, uh, I want to give you my relationships but I don't want to give you my sexuality. It's very easy, isn't it, to just say, yes, some, some of this, but not all of it. But here, the greatest commandment is to love with everything. Say, Lord, it's, it's all yours. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 12. He says, offer your bodies. In other words, offer everything as a living sacrifice to God. What I find is the more difficult it is to offer parts of my life to God, the more painful it is to bring it out into the open, the more liberating in the end it is. Because it's all his. And it brings freedom and joy. So, Jesus, the metric of maturity, the measure of maturity is love. Firstly, for God to give ourselves fully to God. And secondly, he says, love your neighbour. Again, this is not original to Jesus. This is Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. So again, this is a quote. They would have known this. The Pharisees knew all of the commandments. They would have known this. Not a shock. But what he's doing here is linking love for God with love of neighbour. These haven't been really obviously linked before. Jesus is doing something groundbreaking. In other words, he's saying, if you can't love God without loving your neighbour, and you can't love your neighbour without loving God. He says, the first and greatest is to love God. That's the priority order. Uh, But the second is very like it. He's noticed that word, that very like it is to love your neighbour because each of your neighbours was created in the image of God. So love God, love your neighbour. The question comes, who is my neighbour? Jesus was asked that very question. He told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Shocking. Someone who was perceived as an enemy, all right, a neighbour who's living nearby, but an enemy is the recipient of grace and care. 
the Jewish and the Samaritan working together. You know, who are neighbours? Neighbours are people who live close to you, aren't they? It's very easy to be compassionate and loving to people, a people group who've never met before. Much harder to be loving towards those who live by you, near you, who annoy you, who frustrate you, have annoying habits that drive you up the wall, who put their recycling out at the wrong time of the week. God, I don't want to talk about recycling. But your, your neighbour... Your neighbour is someone who's close to you, but they're also probably someone that you didn't choose. Unless you sort of researched neighbourhoods in Bristol and thought, I like those people, I'm going to buy the house next to them. It's very unlikely. Most of our neighbours, we don't choose, do they? Do we? They're people that we kind of put next to each other. So they're close, but they're not chosen. And so our neighbour is often the people we find most difficult the people who we're thrown next to. But Jesus says this is the supreme uh, act of love, is to love your neighbour. Not the people who are easy, that you like, the people who are difficult. So who's your neighbour? It's close, but not chosen. And he says, love your neighbour as yourself. Now, what does that mean? Not instead of yourself. Don't forget about yourself. Don't become a doormat. Don't let people ride over you. Don't um, lose yourself in serving others and giving your love to others. You know, it's important to value yourself as much as you love your neighbour. Some of us, I think, really struggle to value ourselves, to say, I'm going to look at myself the way God looks at me, which is valuable, created in his image. So it's not instead of yourself, but it's not more than the other person. I think there's a danger sometimes that, you know, self-care is so important. Boundaries are so important. We talked about that last week. But sometimes self-care and self-love become self-obsession and self-pity. And actually what we're called to do is the opposite, is to give ourselves to others, to love others as much as we love and respect ourselves. So what does loving our neighbour mean in practical terms? Here's three suggestions. And this comes again from Leviticus, which is very uh, granular. It's very raw and real. It's very understanding of what it means to live as a human being in this world. The first one is, it says in Leviticus, just before this passage, do not slander your enemy. Sounds quite strong, doesn't it? Slandering your enemy. But what it basically means for me is don't gossip about the people who annoy you. That's really hard to do, isn't it? I, if you're anything like me, uh, I used to work in, in corporate training. We used to run training programs for companies. And what we'd do is we'd run a program, we'd come back, we'd all meet in the office, and then we would start talking about the people that we'd work with. And we would say, oh, I can't, can you believe what this person said or what that person said? They were so annoying. And then we'd sort of, if it was a small enough group, we'd start to talk about the other people in our company who kind of annoyed us. And then someone would walk out the room and then someone would say, yeah, and them as well, that I really don't like. And it was quite bonding in a way because you sort of feel like, yeah, we're all together and yeah, they're stupid and they are, we don't like them and whatever. And then, and then you begin to, after time, think, oh, if, if they're saying that about that person, what do they think about me when I walk out the door? What we think about talking about others, is that we'll bond. And we do in the short term. But what in the long term it does is undermine trust. It has the opposite effect. So there's one way that you can love your neighbour. Uh, love means forgiving. It's really hard to do. Forgiveness, like C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness seems like a really good idea until you have to do it. It's really hard. Because someone who's wounded you and hurt you, uh, it leaves a scar. 
And um, I remember, so when I was um, uh, living in London, I just graduated, I was living in a flat, and um, the flat above, there's a water leak. And the woman who owned um, the building uh, had just had a massive water leak. And all my books, um, all seven of them, um, got, got wet. No, I had quite, actually I had quite a few more. So I basically, I, and I didn't have any um, contents insurance because I just thought, well, I, just, I was stupid. I didn't have any contents insurance. So I contacted the woman and I said, oh, we've had this leak. Uh, it's about 350 quid's worth of books. Um, you know, would you mind just, you know, helping me out here? And she said, well, just uh, uh, use your contents insurance. And I said, well, I don't have any. And she said, oh, uh, this was on email. And then I never heard from her again. And I sent emails, I knocked, I sent her a letter. I was so annoyed. Just the injustice of it. It's not my fault. I contacted some lawyer friends. I said, is it my fault? And they said, no, no, no. She caused the damage she should pay. She never did. Um, whoever you are, I forgive you. <laughs> but, and obviously I've moved on. I forgive. <laughs> okay, there's a little bit of bitterness still there. Okay. But that's the point, isn't it? It's really hard to forgive people because you feel like you've been hurt and wounded. Now, that's a really small example, but there are things that are done to us that really hurt. And forgiveness is not easy. I'm not pretending that it is. But you know what Jesus said? He said, you know, if, unless you forgive, you will not have access to my forgiveness. He takes it that seriously. He says, if you forgive others, then I will forgive you. There's a reciprocal relationship. And it's something to do with our hearts. If we hold on to this bitterness, it makes it really hard to receive forgiveness for ourselves. But if we let go of it, oh, what a relief. I'm letting go again. Sometimes forgiveness is a process that takes a long time. It's a daily process. Forgive. And then third, third suggestion is think about how we listen to one another. Listening well is really hard. I am not a very good listener. My wife will tell you that. Uh, sometimes uh, Jill will be talking to me and she'll say, you're not listening. <laughs> and I will say, yes, I was. And she'll say, what did I just say? <laughs> And I'll say, I don't know, but Liverpool just scored <laughs> or something like that. Anyway, that's really annoying, obviously. I'm trying to get better at listening. But sometimes she says something else to me. She says, Toby, you're not hearing me. What she means is not that you're not listening to my words. She's saying you're not really getting what I'm trying to say to you. There's a difference between listening and hearing. Listening well is really difficult. But what an amazing way to love our neighbour. And uh, in Pete Scazzaro's book that we're going through on Tuesdays, uh, he talks about how to listen well. Here's a few suggestions. He says, uh, ask yourself these questions. Am I fully present or am I distracted? Am I loving this person or judging them? Am I open to being changed or closed? Really challenging questions. You know, the, the greatest example of good listening, uh, the model comes from the incarnation. Jesus entered into our world. To listen well is to enter into someone else's world, to hear what they're really saying. But secondly, hold on to yourself. To listen to someone doesn't mean you just get lost in who they are. You don't have to agree with everything they say. Hold on to yourself because you have an important, valid opinion to hold. 
But then we have to live in the tension. You know, Jesus off, came into our world, but he held on to his identity. Try and pull these things together and we begin to listen well. So let's just recap. What is the metric, the measure of maturity? Jesus said it is to love, to love God with all your heart and soul and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. What would the world look like if we began to do that? Just a little bit. What, what would this whole world, what would the Ukraine look like if we began to do that? What would our geopolitical situation look like if we began to do that? What would our own families and communities look like if we began to do that? They'd be transformed. So uh, once on one level, I'm inspired. Let's try and do this. Let's go for this as a community. Um, uh, St. Augustine said, human beings are lovers. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, um, the, the light display down there. All right, my lover. Have you seen that thing down there? You know, um, St. Augustine was not from Bristol. He was North African. But if he was, he would have said, human beings are lovers. And what he says here is the problem is that we don't love. It's not that we don't love. We all love, but we love the wrong things. And then he says, oh, we love the right things, but in the wrong order. You know, we all want to love God, don't we? We all want to love our neighbour, but sometimes we get it in the wrong order. We put them down, eighth and ninth. Discipleship is reordering our priorities to say, Lord, I want to give you everything first and I want to love my neighbour second and everything else comes below that. And the question is not, are you being discipled? The question is, you are being discipled. Who is discipling you? Are you being discipled by Instagram or the Guardian or the Telegraph or by Jesus? And as we allow ourselves to be discipled by him, so our love for him will grow. You know, I said on one level, this looks exciting. On another level, I think this is really hard. I've got a bit of work to do on my own life. There are things that need to change. This last two years have been the hardest years of my life. I think for many of us, that's probably the case. So many challenges and wrestles and pain. And yet, as we come out of COVID, I feel like God's saying, why don't we start again? Why don't we reorder our lives together? Why don't we look at how we can do that better? And not on your own. God never says, right, off you go, do your homework and come back. He says, why don't we do your homework together? Why don't we do this together? I want to help you. 1, uh, 1 John 4, 19. We love because God first loved us. The crucial part of this is to know how to love. We need to receive that love for ourselves. How do we grasp that God loves us? You look at the cross. If you want to know how much something is worth, see how much someone is prepared to pay for it. Do you want to know how much a Banksy was worth this week? Robbie Williams sold three of his Banksies this week in an auction. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, one of them was valued at four point, uh, uh, was valued between two and a half and three and a half million. Actually, it went for 4.4 million, so a lot more. The point is, if someone's prepared to pay that much, that's how much it's worth. How much are you worth? Jesus died for you. He gave you his whole life to show how much he loves you. You are that valuable to him. And how do we know that? We look at the cross. How do we feel that and experience that in our heart? 
by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5. God's love, His agape, has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. Look at the cross. You see that Jesus loves you. Be filled with the Spirit and experience His love for you personally. I'll finish with this. Emmanuel is our nine-month-old baby. And um, we've taken to calling her Pudding because she just sort of sits there. She's quite a big baby and she doesn't really do very much. Like her brother at this age was walking. She literally has just rolled over for the first time. And she just sits there and we call her pudding. We're, we're going to not call her pudding after a certain age because that won't be, that's not very helpful for all sorts of reasons. But anyway, at the moment, she's called pudding because she just sits there. And I have to be honest, she's quite a drain on our resources in our family. She sort of just takes and takes. She takes food, she takes energy. She contributes nothing. She is a net zero contributor to our family budget, anything. She is a net drain on resources. And I've talked to her about this. I've often said to her, look, why don't you do a bit more? But actually, when I look at her and she looks up at me, I just, my heart melts. I just think, oh, I love you. There's something amazing about this little pudding who can do nothing, who can offer nothing. I just love her. And that's how God feels about you. You might think my life is a mess. I'm not offering anything. I haven't even begun to read them. I've never read the Bible. I don't know how to pray. I don't even know who God is. It doesn't matter. God loves you. He looks at you and he says, I love you. Why don't we do life together? Why don't we work together in this family? Why don't I show you how much I love you? And then you can begin to love me and love others around you. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we don't really know what love is in our society. But we, when we look at Jesus, we see what love really is. That you died for us, each one of us. Because you love us so much, we thank you for your love that we see on the cross. We thank you for the love that is poured out through the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And Lord, we pray that as we receive your love afresh, that you would stir in us the desire to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our strength. Maybe there's something in your heart tonight, you're sort of thinking, I know what, I haven't given that thing to God. Well, here's an opportunity. Say to God, I know it's been really hard, but tonight I give you this. Maybe it's your time or your money or your relationship, or your sexuality, or your past, or your future, whatever it is, just offer it to the Lord. Say, Lord, you can have it all.
And Lord, we pray that as we begin to worship you, to love you, you'd so give us a vision for our neighbour as you have made them, made in your image, precious to you, Lord, that we would love them as much as we love ourselves. Lord, we know this is hard. We can't do it on our own, but we thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you want to help us. Thank you that you have the best in store for us, the best plans for us, for our neighbour, for our world, that we join in together with your work in our hearts. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.